0: Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Um, And I'm really excited. I guess uh, what I'm uh, wanting to do this morning is just really set things up for John Mark, who's going to lead us through uh, the most of today. So he's going to do three sessions after this one. And um, I'm so excited to have John Mark here in Australia and share him with all of you, and not just him, but the way he follows Jesus and has been changed by Jesus is profoundly inspiring uh, to me, and I know it will be for you. I just want to uh, get you to open your Bibles to uh, the Book of Ezekiel, Book of Ezekiel, uh, Chapter Eleven, Verse Nineteen. This is, uh, the verse I'm about to read you is a promise. A promise is something quite interesting. Um, if you think about a promise, a promise is either something negative or positive. Uh, recently, when North Korea successfully tested an intercontinental ballistic missile and had managed to miniaturize That warhead, to put it on a a rocket which could reach uh, the Pacific coast of the United States, could reach Australia, Guam, Donald Trump promised to meet that threat with fire and fury. That's not a positive promise. You don't want to be promised to be met with fire and fury. But then there's the promise, which is positive. The promise that I will take you out to a wonderful dinner, the promise that tomorrow, Uh, On Sunday, for Father's Day, uh, the fathers in this room will most likely receive a present. A promise is something which does not exist, but points to something that will come and something that will happen. Israel finds themselves in a time in the book of Ezekiel where they're in exile. They, They are experiencing this reality, which is not what they hoped for. It is a negative experience. They are far from home. They're... Homeland has just been absolutely destroyed and occupied by a foreign force. And they have this experience of constantly finding despair and hopelessness knocking at their door. That's their reality. Yet peppered throughout the Old Testament is these promises. Not the arrival, but the promise of the arrival. And so this verse is one of those promises and these promises, if you imagine, are like the little tiles of a mosaic, of a fresco which is pointing towards something which will to come. And if you put all these different promises together, they point to the coming Christ. Ezekiel 11, verse 19. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Flesh used in the New Testament uh, is often used in a negative sense in terms of things which resist God. But here it's a contrast between stone. Between a heart which does not care. And this beautiful imagery of turning the human heart, the seat of emotions, the seat of will, the seat of who we are into this soft flesh, which is able to love. And so this promise, which we see then come in Jesus, is something which haunts the Old Testament. Now, what I want to do to set things up for John Mark today is I want to talk about that desire for an undivided heart for a new spirit, for a heart of flesh. That's a language for a life which is transformed by God. And I want to talk about what it looks like for us to have that sense of missing that. I just want to talk about two writers, and then I'm going to hand across to John Mark. The first writer I want to talk about is a guy called Walker Percy. Walker Poisey wrote a book uh, called The Movie Girl, which um, won the National Book Award in 1960. And what's really interesting is that when you read the book, I read this a number of years ago and I sort of read it, and it's like that seems fairly normal. Rereading it of late. You realize that this is a story set in the ni- early 1950s, and it's the story of the emergence. And the reason why so many people see this as one of the classic American novels is it's the story of the emergence of a new kind of person. The hero or protagonist of the book is a guy called Binks Bolling, wonderfully named Binks Bolling. He has been through World War II, like so many of the young men who were, you know, coming into their late 20s and early 30s. He's 29 in the book. But what's different to so much writing and novels that came before is that... If you think about World War II, it's this epic battle between the Axis forces and the Allied forces. The world was filled with all these big political streams, all these trying to find the meaning of life in philosophy. The 20th century is just this like clash between these great ideas, either philosophically or even in the field of combat. But Binks Bolling is a kind of future cosmonaut appearing in the 1950s. Bing Bolling, when you just read it, he talks in the books about his narrative, and when he talks about the war, he just mentions it in passing. He doesn't go into it. His life is working um, in an office. His life is about his secretaries. As a 29-year-old guy, he keeps hiring these girls in their early 20s, and he basically will fall in love with them as he looks at them across his office. They begin these relationships. He likes nothing more to take them on a drive down the coast. And he becomes obsessed with them. But as you read, and what's the genius of the book is, he's not actually in love with them. He's in love with the feeling of love. He's in a kind of lust where he's simply interested in the little things about their physical being. He's not actually interested in having a relationship with them. So he moves from one relationship The relationship breaks down, they're heartbroken, they leave the job. He then gets another secretary, determined for this not to happen again, but then slowly watching her go and walk through the office, he falls in love again. Binks Bolling spends his days going to the movies, hence the title of the book, The Movie Goer. He's walking through New Orleans, which is the city in which he lives, and he happens to see the movie star of the day, William Holden, who's filming a movie in New Orleans. And he walks behind him entranced by this guy who seems to come from another world. He talks about him in a way that as he's walking ahead of him, it's like the ordinariness and the boringness of everyday life disappears And William Holden, as this A-list celebrity, seems to make life magical and special. Walker Percy, uh, sorry, Binks Bowling struggles to make friends. He has these relationships, but he rarely goes deep. Binks Bowling is, in many ways, the contemporary individual, simply skipping along the surface of life. Constantly staying at the superficial, pursuing experience, in love with love, in love with lust, not in love with a genuine person. And what's really interesting is that as the book is written in New Orleans, in the background of the story, that there's these different Catholic festivals in New Orleans, they have Mardi Gras, and he mentions these churches, is that there's this haunting of this Christian heritage which has now disappeared. And really, the the tension of the book begins 10 pages in, where after describing this very superficial life, he says, This morning, for the first time in years, there occurred to me the possibility of a search. That underneath, all of these experiences in this new kind of culture growing up after World War II of consumerism and movies and celebrity, which in our day has gone up a hundred times, there's this possibility of a search. He realizes, though, that the desire for that search is actually undermined by his lifestyle. And so he says a few lines later, Thinking about his search, I was onto something. I vowed that if I ever got out of this fix, I would pursue the search. So what you have is you have this kind of life where Binks Bowling is living this skipping across the surface of the lake search. He knows that sorry, life. He knows that there's something bigger out there. He's not exactly sure what it would look like, but there's this sense of this search that one day he wishes he could go on, but he's so stuck in. This pattern of living, which has totally formed him into a person who never goes beneath the surface. His love life forms him into a a person who is always superficial. His obsession with just filling his time with movies is like the first sort of Netflixer going from cinema to cinema in 1954, just always surrounding himself with images. He never goes deeper. So he's actually haunted, not by... He doesn't go on a search like people have throughout history, to find the meaning of life. The search hovers in the air, always there, but he can never get to it. And that's why I think is this prophetic figure. Because we have that in our world today, this sense... That people know there's something deeper beneath the surface. There's something of weight. There's something worth pursuing that we want to go after. And we think about how our lives could be more attuned and more undivided. Filled with the Spirit. Where our hearts turn to stone by the worship of images. As Israel was worshipping images, but we worship a culture of image. So we're constantly Haunted by the search that we never fully go on. That idea of haunting is actually a term that one other author I want to just introduce you to, a guy called Mark Fisher, who was an English music journalist, really left-wing, I don't agree with all his politics, that he would write about music in this really interesting way. And he was constantly haunted By the fact that as life got more comfortable, that somehow he was haunted by a future that never arrived. He talks about listening to music in the early 1990s, where it seemed to point to this future. He's like obsessed with like techno and like drum and bass when it first started, because he heard this music and it was like it it sounded like the future. Yet his theory is that in 1996, music actually stops. And his theory is that you could put any CD now, or or that's, that's 1996 CDs. You could take any music from today and play it to someone in 1996 or 1998, and it would not sound new to them. That actually, he's haunted by a future that never arrives. And so he talks about walking around London. And while London gets more gentrified, better coffee shops, Old buildings are knocked down. He's haunted by this London, which is no longer there. So you're getting this comfortable world, yet at the same time, you're losing something. So he calls it hauntology. And he says, hauntology, it's not like being haunted by a ghost or a specter, which is there. He says... This specter that we are missing is understood not as anything supernatural, but as that which acts without physically existing. And so we live in a world in the West now where Melbourne, where Australia is just becoming more and more comfortable. Portland, where John Mark's from, is a city which has radically changed. just like our city, Melbourne here, if you're from other states, has changed, where everything's getting nicer, but pushes you to the surface. The coffee gets better, but we're not encouraged to go any deeper. And so I just want to end by saying two elements of hauntology that we experience. The first one is underneath the surface of everything in the West, we're haunted by the memory of Christianity. People got it wrong when they talked about us being in a post Christian age as if Christianity had completely disappeared. It hasn't. It's something like Hamlet's ghost in Hamlet's, which is not alive, but it's actually influencing the scene. Christianity is alive, but the memory still exists in people's minds. So much of the vision of justice and equality and tolerance and all of this has incredibly Christian roots. So we're haunted by a future and a coming kingdom of God, which is not here but operates like a magnetic force, always drawing us towards it. So that's people, in a sense, outside of the church. But I want to talk about, and I think this is where John Mark will, will be so helpful, is I want to say as believers, whilst secular West is haunted by a memory of Christianity, I want to say us as believers in many ways have our own version of Binks Bowling's search. Some of you today are people who have that idea of a search, a desire to go deeper with Jesus and a sense that Christianity as you're living it now is actually haunted by an absence That you know Jesus is true, that you want to follow him, and you have these moments where you seem to go beneath the surface, and your skipping speedboat becomes a submarine for moments. But you're haunted that you know there's something more. That when you read a text like we just read, I will give them an undivided heart. You know that your heart in some ways is divided. That when you read of a new spirit, you may have experienced the spirit. You may have felt him at that altar call or maybe reading scriptures or listening to a worship song in your car. But it's like someone who comes and visits but then leaves and you are haunted by the Holy Spirit. Who you know is there but somehow does not abide, is not present in the way that you know is possible. That you're haunted when you look at your heart and you hear that idea of a heart of flesh which doesn't hold on to things. It's not entrapped by money, it's not entrapped by lust, which is not entrapped by envy or jealousy or bitterness. And you know that your heart maybe is partially flesh but also is partially stone. Stone. And so what I think today is about is an invitation to no longer be haunted by something which is not physically present. This is an invitation to go deeper with Jesus. In many ways, the answer, I think, to the church's future is not in some new model or changing this up or doing that or now becoming this. It's actually to go deep into the search. To no longer be haunted by a Christian life which you know is there, but like Binks Bowling, you'll go, if I ever get out of my life and its patterns, maybe I'll get there one day. You never arrive at a point in the Christian journey where you have arrived home. We are always sojourning, moving forward until Christ returns. So I'm really excited to have John Mark here today and to talk about what we're talking today Because this is about a possibility, where Jesus is not just a tick-the-box option, not something you're born into, where church is not just something you do, or even some of you as pastors here, and there's some pastors in the room, or youth pastors, or people who even work in ministry, even those people are desiring something greater. And so what we're talking about today is actually when there is no hauntology, no absence, but instead the abiding presence of Christ. Radically changing your life, not as just an idea, but as your teacher, as your rabbi. Where you're not just a Christian, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christianish. I go to church. You're actually someone transformed by what it is to follow Jesus. To not live the surface life that we see from Binks Bowling to 21st century Melbourne. Someone whose search is found in the depths of Jesus, who then discovers what is to have an undivided heart, a new spirit poured into them, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone.